what was it like being in a song and playing with Prince and being in that groove with him? When I first met him, he wasn't Prince, really. He was just starting. Right. So. When did you meet him? 1977. Oh, wow. Yeah. The beginnings. Before there was even a record. It was the before. I mean, it was like he was doing his record. Yeah. So he came to the Bay Area in Oakland. He wanted to be in the studio that Sly recorded in, Sly in Carlos Stone. Santana. Yeah. Uh-huh. And at the time, my dad was in Santana. And uh, so they're like, there's this young kid next door who's just playing and doing everything himself, you know. Um, and that's how we met. So then Prince played the Bay Area, and I went to see him play at the same place, the Circle Star. Everyone kind of played there. And then we met, and he's like, oh, my God, I've been following your career. You know, I, I want to hire you. You know, blah, blah. I mean, all, the conversation just went crazy, like, in the first five minutes. Um, and we became friends. So I saw the beginning of who he was to become who he was. Thank you for joining us for a Torre Show Patreon exclusive, and it's an incredible app. I've been on the Prince beat for over 15 years, first interviewing him and playing basketball with him, and then writing a book about him, and then building an epic six-hour podcast about him that's coming out later this year, more on that later. But in all that time, I had never talked to Sheila E., the great percussionist and singer who played with Prince and made the unforgettable song, The Glamorous Life, and was once engaged to Prince. I finally got the chance. Sheila is so cool. She's a great musician. And she's a woman who emits this sense of power. It's amazing to talk to her about music, about Prince, and about some of the rougher parts of her childhood. All right, let's go. It's Sheila E. on Touré Show. We know you as a performer, but I believe at your heart, you're a drummer, right? <laughs> a percussionist, right? Percussionist, yeah. 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 So just take me into that. Like, what is the difference between being a good percussionist and being a great percussionist? Because you have, you're a great percussionist. You have great ones in your family. Your godfather is Tito Puente and your family. And So what's the difference between good and being great? Um, I. It's interesting. I, I think uh, great would be definitely being able to keep time. It's important. Well, that's basic, right? That's yeah, what that's I want, basic. right? Yeah, that's uh, basic, Keeping time. Can but that really be taught or is that innate? You can teach it, but you really have to understand it and know it. You know, you really do. It really does have to be a gift, part of a gift, because you can teach it, but it's like, like for example, um, when I played with Ringo Starr, I had to, never thought I was going to do that, but to be able to do that and play in his band and be the drummer, we were both going to play together as well. I had to learn how, basically how he walked. So you have to, it, what is his rhythm? How does he swing it? So you have to emulate him in order to understand. And I had to sit there and break down the way that he played. And it, his simplicity was complicated because every time I got ready to do a fill into some portion of the song that would come natural as a drummer, I was always late. I was always behind, not in timing, but behind where he would normally play his fill. And I'm like, why am I behind each of his fills? I realized that he would, in playing as a right-handed drummer, he would leave with lead with his left hand to the tom instead of his right hand that would come off the hi-hat naturally. 
So he would g- get there before his other hand. And once I figured that out, it's like, that's how you walk. So being a great percussionist drummer would be, of course, keeping time, but it's really uh, listening to others and when not to play. Um, because when you overplay, that makes you not a great player to me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, you should be able to just keep time and just play the same thing over and over again. And a lot of the younger players now just don't want to play the same thing for eight bars. Like they want to start soloing right away or, you know, playing a solo on a hi-hat. And it's like, no, you should just keep time. And the discipline of that is very complicated for great percussionists and drummers to just keep time and really find the places, the sweet spots to to play. Yeah, we always pay attention, of course, to the front man or the front woman, but the the drum and the percussion are sort of the heart, right? The, mm-hmm. the literal heartbeat of the music. So, I mean, is there a lot of pressure just musically on you guys who are back there? Like, because if you don't keep time properly and, you know, do your, like, just the, how can right. the rest of this thing work? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It, there's pressure because we're basically running the train, you right. know. Um, and if I don't keep time correctly and everyone's following me, I'm in trouble, you know, um, because everyone's got to follow me. So um, it's important, like I said, to really keep time. Um, you know, I've I've played with many drummers as a percussionist and playing with other drummers. If their timing is not great, you know, it's hard to follow them. And we kind of have to because if we're all following him, we all sound like we're doing the right thing. If we don't follow him, he's going to sound wrong or she's going to sound wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Who are some of the people you looked up to? As drummers or percussion players? Well, first of all, my dad. My dad uh, is an amazing percussion player, still plays. Amazing. Um, And growing up listening to Tito Puente because him and my dad, he and my dad were best friends. They, I think they met when they were 15 or 17 years old. Wow. Um, but listening to Tito Puente and then his drummer like um, Billy Cobham, uh, Harvey Mason, Dennis Chambers. Uh, man, there's so many. I mean, growing up like that, you know, listening to those guys for me was pretty incredible. And to be able to play so early on with, for me, playing with Billy Cobham when I started playing with him 16 years old. So to watch him, his technique and how he would practice and warm up, you know, it was like, um, it was kind of crazy, crazy things that he would do. He would lean against the wall just to do paradiddles to warm up. Paradiddles. Paradiddles are like um, different rhythms that you would do, whatever your left hand would do to make sure your right hand would do vice versa. So you play very evenly and, and odd odd signature, time signatures. And he would lay his arms and his elbows against the wall and play snare drum and do like one, 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 you know, left, right, left, right, then left, left, right, right, left, left, right, and then left, 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 right, right, right. And he would just keep doing that. And it would all sound the same no matter how many times he would do it. And he'd have a conversation and and his sticks would pass his head like in strokes and it would still sound the same. It was amazing to me. Like wow. I'd never seen anyone do that before. Can you talk about anything you might have learned from your legendary godfather, Tito Puente, about percussion? Um, basically, uh, really like my dad is just to play, for us to play from our heart. The East Coast 
Latin salsa scene was different than the West Coast. I was born and raised in Oakland. So for us, it was different because there's a thing called the clave that was important. That is important to salsa, to Latin music. Which is what? Which is a time. So it's a, instead of the two, two and the four, one, two, three, four, you know, okay. we clap on the two and the four. We play it with funk music. Okay. The clave is one, two, one, two, three, or one, two, three. One, two. It's one or the other. It's two, three, or three, two. Okay. And that is the heartbeat to salsa music. And if you don't, you have to play certain rhythms if it switches. If it's two, three, or three, two, there's specific things that you're supposed to play. And also the bell patterns on timbales changes. And you can only follow that by listening to the drummer. I mean, listening to the bass player and what he plays. So that technique is totally like we didn't grow up playing that way. For the West Coast, we played around that. It was more free, so it was Latin jazz. So it was more jazz-oriented than Latin. And those two different, those rhythms were different. So with Tito, when we would come and play with him, they, you know, Tito would allow us to not basically pay attention to that clave because we weren't taught that. We were self-taught to just play openly. And um, the East Coast was very strict about playing this specific rhythm, so playing with Tito, he said, don't listen to those guys. You're fine. You guys play the way that you want. We were accepted by him, but by others, we weren't for a while. I love how you just, before you just casually, yeah, you know, when I was playing with Ringo Starr, like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and your career is like that, and you're full of that, and I, I want to talk about some of those people um, and work up to the big one, but like you played with Marvin Gaye. I did. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. Um, you know, you grow up listening to music and artists, and then one day you end up playing with them is just pretty incredible. Um, he was a soft-spoken, beautiful man and very generous and a big heart. And, um, you know, it was the time that he was able to come back to do his last tour. And he, at the time, he was living in Europe, so he couldn't come back to the States not unless he paid his taxes. Mm. And that big tour that we did was based on him giving back the money so he could stay in the States. So I was on that last tour. And, um, you know, he had a 26-piece band, and I ended up getting my brother in the band as well to play percussion and our friend who we called our cousin because we all grew up together. So there were three percussion players and 26 people in the band. Um, amazing to be able to watch him, like, at the very beginning of the tour, um, we I think we started here at Radio City Music Hall. And um, I almost forgot to play because I was so amazed by him just sitting at the piano and playing. You know, I started watching like a fan, like, <gasps> and then someone nudged me like, you, got, you, you have get to in play. There. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I almost missed my cue. He was just amazing. He was incredible. What'd you learn about music just being close to him like that? Oh, uh, when not to play. When not to play because during rehearsal, um, we started playing um, What's Going On. Mm. And, you know, that rhythm on the conga was like one of the first rhythms I learned how to play just by listening to that record. And that rhythm really only allowed you to play a, one drum, one conga drum. I had three. So it didn't mean I had to play them all, but we started playing and just to be in that environment and going, oh my God, his back was to us. 
we're all playing and we started dancing. It's like, I'm playing with Marvin Gaye and I, we grew up listening to this song. And I, it got good to me. So I just hit the other drum, you know, and and I hit it again. And and I was like, this is like, whoa. And like I said, he was he's a soft-spoken man. He was singing and in the middle of that song, he just yelled like, hold on, like just screamed and yelled. And everyone's like, you know, you hear I know that noise on there, but that's what it sounded like. Yeah. And people were dropping their instruments like, oh, shoot, what just happened? And he turned around and he looked at the band. Like there's, like I said, 26 of us. And he said, someone played an extra beat. And I'm like, this is oh. This is on stage during the show? Rehearsal. During rehearsal, okay. Sound check. I mean, a rehearsal, not sound check. And I was frightened because, of course, it was me. I mean, I was, I, and I'm like, I know he knows it's me because, like, it, it was a, it was a congress, but there were three of us playing, so he wasn't sure which one. So I, I, my heart was beating so fast. I was so frightened, and I thought I was going to get fired. So I raised my hand and I said, "Excuse me, Mr. Gay. I'm sorry." My brother will never do that again. <laughs> and so my brother raised his hand. He's like, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Marvin Gaye. I won't, I'll never do that again because I got him the gig, so he owed me. But What a yeah. nice brother, though, yes. to fall on the sword for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Diana Ross, mm. what was that like? Uh, I didn't last long in that band. <laughs> Um, she came to play in San Francisco at the Circle Star Theater, which was uh, a venue that was in the round. They only had maybe six or eight of those, but that was one in San Francisco. So she came to play, um, and they called me to play in the band with the orchestra. And I said, for sure, yeah. Again, another artist you grew up listening to. Yeah. Of course I would play Diane Ross. So um, they said, you have to wear black. Okay, fine. I'll wear black because you're going to be in the pit and in the because the stage was in the round half the stage was the orchestra in the pit and the other half of the stage stayed level for her and it the the stage turned so we started playing and um you know I told my friends and family everyone's like I'm playing with Diana Ross at Circle Star so I half the audience was my family and friends nice. well that I guess that wasn't a good idea no because she got very jealous and she was upset because they were screaming, Sheila Escovito, oh my God. And they were, you know, she was introducing the band and then the attention was not on her. Oh my gosh, that was not a good thing. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. 
And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So um, they took me backstage after the first show and they said, "Um, excuse me, but you're going to have to change your attire. And I'm like, huh? Yeah, you're going to have to change. Like you're wearing black, but we need you to cover your arms. And I'm like, but why? I play percussion. Like I can't wear you know, long sleeve or anything like that. They said, well, you know, Miss Ross would like for you to cover your arms. Okay. So I covered my arms. I no big deal. So we played the next show and people were screaming and yelling. And every time it went around, you know, where my family and friends, they're yelling and screaming and it wasn't a good thing again. So so then um, they said, Miss Ross wants to speak with you. I said, okay. So I went backstage and I stood at her door. And I just stood there for like five, 10 minutes. And she could see me in the mirror. She was talking to her friend. Next, you know, like 20, 30 minutes, and I'm just still standing there. I said, uh-uh, this is crazy. And so the musical director, I said, I'm leaving. And he said, well, no, she wants to speak with you. I said, well, what do you want me to do? She just wants you to cover up like everything. Like, I don't even know what, what else I could cover. Right. And I said, you know, what is the problem? Well, Miss Ross wants you to cover up. I said, okay, um, you hired me because of my musicianship. So, you know, if I can't, I'm not going to, I don't even know what else to do. They said, well, you, you have to just, you know, do what she says. I said, okay, then I quit. They're like, no, you can't quit. No, I quit. And I just walked away and I just left. That was it. So later on we were friends, but that was my first time playing with her. Mm. Um, I want to talk about Prince and I want to start by talking about my two favorite of your songs, which I went through last night, just sort of just reacquainting with them. And uh, A Glamorous Life is mm-hmm. such an extraordinary record. Um, can you talk about making that record? I mean, was that one of those like made in one day sort of songs? Yes and no. It was actually the last song on the record um, because uh, when we wrote it, Prince and I wrote it, it was a song that if I, st- back then when I was writing, if I stayed with a song that was an instrumental and if I didn't hear a melody or lyrics to a song, I couldn't think of one. It was just like, it's I'm stuck. It's an instrumental. So um, 
at the last minute, we ended up doing something, and, and it was the last song on the record. Um, and we took it to Warner Brothers after it was done, and Warner Brothers liked the song, but they liked this other song on the album called Bella St. Mark. So they wanted that one to be the first single. And I'm like, no, no, no. no. no, no, no. <laughs> it has to be Glamorous Life because it's percu- it was the only song that I really played percussion like to the extreme of, you know, it was a 10-minute, you know, song. And I took a solo and the whole thing. And the point was is to go out as Sheila E. And it was the first time that a lot of people would see a woman playing timbales. I wanted to feature that is my instrument. And it creates a, a mood of excitement and yeah. energy. And, yeah. you know, she wants love, but she's not, you know, like giving into the boys and like, you know, it's very up. And Yeah, it was up. It was powerful. And it was very percussive and dance. And, you know, and the, and the record company wanted me to to put out Bella St. Mark, which is more of a pop, very pop song. And... I wasn't playing. I mean, I played percussion, but it wasn't featuring me as a as a as a percussion player. So I fought with them. Like, no, it has to be glamorous life. It has to be glamorous life. And they're like, and oh. Prince was agreeing with you. Oh, absolutely. But the thing was, I said to them, I'm going to play timbales. And the Warner Brothers, the A and R people, they're saying, Well, what are timbales? And I'm like, Okay, so all <laughs> I right. thought this is the music business. <laughs> wow, and amazing. So I said, They said, Okay, you're going to have to do a showcase. All right, fine. So we came, I brought the band in, we came in and we played in the courtyard at Warner Brothers in Burbank and to show them what we were trying to do. They cause they didn't get it. They're like, who can you tell me plays like you so that we can look at something? And I said, I don't know. I don't think there are any back then. Right. We couldn't I, I couldn't think of anyone. So once they saw it, they got it. They're like, oh, aha, we know. <laughs> <laughs> who wrote the line? You have to, if you have to ask, you can't afford it lingerie, which is just like, just one of those images that stands out to me. We kind of wrote all the stuff. Like, there are so many things that, like, lyrically, we actually took out. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like what? I can't tell you. Come on, give me one. Not even a oh one. No. Actually, I might put it, I'm doing another book, so I'm doing um, things that I never really talked about and a lot of backstage stuff that... People don't know about that happened. That is really a lot of craziness, you know. I mean, as 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 great as a glamorous life is, a love bizarre is an extraordinary song, and the poetry of these. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, if I can read my writing, you know, the, <laughs> the man, the moon up above, it shines upon your skin, whispering, whispering words that scream of outrageous, outrageous sin. sin. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, yeah. this is poetry. You know, we all want the stuff that's found in our wildest dreams. Right. It gets kind of rough in the back of our limousine. I mean, it's like, you know, I can see it. And I, it's, it's, yeah. Talk about that song and making that song and being in the studio writing and creating that record. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, so I, of course, Prince and I were always in the limousine, right? Always in the back. And so some of that had to do personally with what happened with us in the back of a limousine. Um, During the Purple Rain tour, we would stop at places to record because we didn't have very many days off. We were out for almost over a year. We did like 98 shows or something. So um, we would stop 
periodically whenever we had a in, an in-between, you know, we're going to the next city on the tour bus. And I also had a studio on my tour bus. I was like, I need a studio just in case I come up with stuff we can put down as a demo and then go into the studio. And that's exactly what happened. So we had the idea of it. I had a, a Lynn drum machine and a piano and then, of course, having the bass guitar players on, on, on the bus as well. So I got the idea of the, of the basic rhythm. So we stopped. I want to say recorded that record in Atlanta, I think. I'm pretty sure it was Atlanta. One day? One day. Oh, one day, one take, basically. Right. Yeah, it wow. was done. Wow. Like, let's get it done. And so that second album as well, I, you know, we did while we were on the road. Um, but it was a lot of fun because you just, you know, you come up with things, you talk about your life, and it's easier to write to say, oh, this is what's happening right now. And that was the moment we were in, you know? I mean, I imagine playing with Prince being akin to playing with basketball with Michael Jordan and just... He knows where you're supposed to be. He passes you the ball in the exact right spot. He's knocking down the shot that you dream of him making. I mean, what was it like, you know, being in a song and playing with Prince and being in that groove with him? If he was here, you would ask him, what was it like playing with Sheila and being in that moment? Yeah. It would be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, when I first met him, he wasn't Prince, really. Right. Yeah. He was just starting. Right. So When did you meet him? 1977. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. The beginning. Before there was even a record. The before. I mean, it was like he was doing his record. Yeah. So he came to the Bay Area in Oakland uh, to record in, he wanted to be in the studio that Sly recorded in, Sly in Stone. Carlos Santana. Yeah. Uh -huh. And at the time, my dad was in Santana. And uh, so they're like, there's this young kid next door who's just playing and doing everything himself, you know. Um, and that's how we met. So then Prince played the Bay Area, and I went to see him play at the same place, the Circle Star. Everyone kind of played there. And then we met, and he's like, oh, my God, I've been following your career. You know, I, I want to hire you, you know, blah, blah. I mean, all, the conversation just went crazy, like, in the first five minutes. Um, and we became friends. So I saw the beginning of who he was to become who he was, you know, the transition. The thing is, is at the very beginning, you know, you're trying to find yourself as an artist. You're not sure what you want to do. And that first record was very different than, um, it was a good record though, but you know, you have, he was going as a songwriter and as a musician and an artist. So, um, yeah, it was, it was different, but to watch him grow as a guitar player and as a songwriter and to be able to, you know, go from one extreme to another. I mean, he was brilliant at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. No, definite musical genius. Um, what was he like as a person? Because he was a little different. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard people talk about, you know, multiple personalities out of him. No, no. No, he just, I think him growing up kind of like a loner, you know, and being in the house and just listening to music uh, in the basement and just learning, you know, and studying hard. And influenced by Sly and Carlos and James Brown and you know, all these people, Jimi Hendrix, you know, uh, Little Richard. I mean, it, you know, the way he wanted to look and um, just studying these people, uh, it was a big deal for him. So that being said, it's not like he uh, had a lot of friends. Um, he was always to himself, you know. Um, and when he met me, it just a lot of it changed as well because 
I introduced him to Latin jazz music, which he had never heard from heard that music before. And then to be able to play with my dad and my two brothers in a band, he was just like, you are the luckiest person in the whole wide world. Yeah. And I want to do that with my dad, you know, as well. He wanted that. He wanted family. And he just, there was discord with he and him and his family. And he, you know, he wanted that. So it was just being different in that way. There was things that I think that you would think were common for people to know or do. He just didn't do, didn't know because he didn't experience it because he wasn't brought up that way. Yeah. So it's not like he had different personalities. He's just growing as a person. What do you mean he didn't, there were things that he didn't know to do because he didn't have a normal childhood well, and all that? I mean, I think... Like one of the things I was surprised, you know, early on was not because you live in Minneapolis would you go to a beach, but he had never been to a beach before, put his feet in sand until we were at the end of the Purple Rain Tour. That's like 84, 85. He had never put his feet in sand. It's that's just, in sand. I mean, that's just unusual. Sure. Maybe it's common for me because we're West Coast, right. you know. Um and I always went to Hawaii, like, it's like, let me go find a great beach. Um, you know, just things like that. And he asked questions like, what am I supposed to wear when I go on to the beach? I mean, that's right. different. Right. He just didn't experience it. He did get to bring his father into his music and into his life, that Purple Rain period. Right. John Nelson is right. in the songs and hanging out. And what was that like when finally he gets to live that dream? Oh, it was amazing. He, it was, and it was beautiful for his dad as well. It was very nice to see. Um, he loved it. He glowed when his dad was around, and um, his dad was also getting clothes made by the people, the the seamstress that uh, Prince had his team, and so his dad was dressed up every day and had suits and ties, and it was beautiful to see. What was John Nelson like? He's quiet as well, very quiet. Yeah. Um, he loved when he got to jam and play that, you know. Of course. Of course, you know. Like my dad, he loves it when we call him up to play. So it's the same kind of thing to be with your kids and and then be proud of your kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a Prince story that you could tell that sort of tells us something about, you know, like what you know, what he what he was like, what it was like being around him? Uh the first thing is he was funny and he loved playing pranks on people. Okay. So he's very funny playing pranks. And he and I would constantly uh, challenge each other to see who was the best at whatever it was. I mean, either it was ping pong, pool, basketball, who could stay up the longest. It didn't even matter who played drums the best. It, it was like whatever. We constantly... Uh, I think that's why we loved being together all the time. It's just like, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. Well, who played drums the best? I did, of course. <laughs> of course <What>? you did. <laughs> Actually, you know what? He's a He was a really good drummer. Yeah, he was a good drummer. He was. They said he was a great drum programmer because he would program the machine to seem human. He and did. And like make mistakes. He did, yeah. He um, he was brilliant at the Lin drum machine, and he actually did stuff that no one had ever done before. And the way that he utilized guitar pedals to be to attach to the Lin drum machine, and that's how we got all those sounds. 
Your career has been long and amazing and Prince is just one of the people you've worked with. What is your superpower that has allowed you to travel from Oakland to around the world? Um, knowing that this is a gift and I don't take it for granted it's, and it's my passion. You know, when you find your passion, you just want to do it no matter what it takes to do it. No matter how hard it is, you're going to do it. Um, and, you know, being raised by my, my parents, they're pretty awesome. And um, my, my parents bringing so many different genres of music in the house. You know, growing up listening to Latin jazz and jazz music. And then growing up listening to Motown, like nonstop. You know, that was our music, go-to music. Uh, listening to James Brown, and, you know, of course, anyone on Motown, Stevie and everyone. And then my dad said, hey, you're nine years old. You're in the third grade. You need to go learn how to play violin. Like, why? Why do I have to play violin? So I started learning classical music, and that opened up the door. It was like, wow, I had no idea. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. And well, wait, well, what, what, did, what did that open up for you? Musically, I mean, we loved all types of music anyway, but musically, it took me to a place that it was somewhat soothing and not really like I'm thinking of rhythms and patterns and, you know, I want to jam and I want to play. It was more at like a water as water goes through the river, you know, and it, it just kind of flows. It was that thing that I had never experienced before, you know, and opening that up classical, classical music. like there are times when I'll just listen to that because it's soothing. It reminds me of being young, you know, and it's, it was interesting. I, I mean, I love that we, we got to listen to all that type different types of music. And I think that's what kept me going um, throughout my career thus far is being able to play any type of music because I feel like it's a part of me, you know? And we were never, my dad never put us in a box. My parents were like, you just have to learn this music. He said, learn it all. 
and continue to learn and continue to be a student. Yeah. I mean, if you're a lifelong student, right? I mean, that's a beautiful thing. You're always sort of like absolutely growing and there's always another thing to look forward to learning and taking in and every day. Absolutely. I will continue to be a student of life every day. I say that. Well, what is something that you've learned very recently that you're, that you're thinking about as a perpetual student of life? Uh, That I need to go and get my GED because I never did. And it's on my bucket list. And so recently I looked at how, what am I going to do to, I need to make this happen. I'm going to be 62 in December. It's like, it's time. So I looked online and I'm like, who knows the answers to these questions? It's insane. Like, was it this hard when I was in school? Because I have no idea what, I don't even know where to look. So now I have to get a tutor. Like, I'm not, I'm serious. After all you've accomplished and come through, uh-huh. why do you need to go, why do you want to go back and tick that box? Yeah, uh, because I never did. I never did. And uh, my family, my dad didn't graduate. My mom did both. Only my brother graduated. My other brother didn't graduate. My sister didn't graduate. We all From high school. Junior high and high school. Yeah, my sister stopped in junior high. I stopped in high school. Uh, My other brother stopped in high school. And my younger brother is the only one that graduated. And it's just, you know, we weren't, school was important, but it wasn't. And at the same time, where I grew up in the hood, it's like the schools were really bad and it was hard to be in those schools. And not only that, it like where we lived, I was forced to join a gang in on the streets there. And then I was bused to an area because they the quota had to be so many kids from the streets or the hood to be bused up to the school. So I went up there and ended up joining a gang up there in the school and they got kicked out of school and that it was that whole. So you got expelled. Uh, no, I mean kicked out of the school. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not for one day, like period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you, yeah, like it was you got expelled from school, like for real. For, for being in the gang. Uh, well, I started a riot. I was angry. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> um, it was Martin Luther King's birthday, and I loved that man, and. Being in junior high, all the kids where I lived were going to walk out. But the kids up on the hill, they're like, we're not going to walk out. And I'm like, yes, we are. They're like, no, we're not. And I said, well, I am. And they heard that I was going to do that. And then we got angry and we started throwing rocks and breaking glass. And (laughs) yeah, it was not good. I had a moment of being angry. I had, I should say I I had a reason, but yeah. But it still doesn't excuse what I did. What was the gang? What was the gang? Yeah, what was the gang? What was it called? The first gang was called East 21st Street Gang. And that's the street I lived on. Was it a female gang or co-ed? It was co-ed. Yeah. It was co-ed because it was a family that lived across the street. And they used to beat me up every day. <laughs> they beat me up every day until, you know, they're they're part of the gang and they're all family. So they would beat me up. And that's why I was so fast in running. Seriously, I'd run for my life running home because I wanted to be an athlete. And I wanted track track and field. Yeah. And um, running every day from them, scared to death. I ran. And one day they said, if you beat the fastest runner in the gang, then we'll leave you alone. And I was like, okay. So I beat her. And... Then I they wanted me to be a part of the gang, and I was like, I don't want to be, but you don't have a choice. 
okay. Because then they, they were beating people up, and I didn't want to do that. But I then had to do that. Otherwise, they would beat me up. It's like didn't matter whether I was in or out. I would still get beat up, and it was just wrong. Yeah. So then you were having to participate in beating other people up? Absolutely. And did you like that? No, I hated it. I didn't want to do that. But it's like it's them or me. Exactly. And I've already had enough of it from yeah. myself. So once I started beating other people up, they thought I was crazy, and then they'd stop. Then when they thought I was crazy, they're like, okay, well, you're cool then. You're in. You're good. But like, why? I mean, that's what gangs do sometimes. Not yeah. all of them, but that was what they did to me. What are your parents doing and saying while well, this is going on? Are they aware of what's happening? They were kind of aware. I mean, my dad was working on tour sometimes, and then my mom was working at a ice cream factory, Safeway, and... Uh, and then we would have babysitters sometimes, but they weren't really babysitting us. Yeah. So they didn't really know what was going on. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So how did you get out of that? Uh, well, that's when I went to the other school and joined that gang. And then um, my mom made me live in a different city with, with her sister and to get me out of there. And uh, that was when things changed for me because then I went to a school that was predominantly white and there were only two black girls in the school. They were sisters. And there was one Hispanic girl. And she was a senior. And I went into that school in the ninth grade. And um, I was the only one there. And it's like, dang, I don't have my gang with me. I don't have my homies with me. I'm all alone. And I was all by myself. And I didn't know that how to be by myself. Like, I realized, wait a minute. I'm here by myself. And I feel out of place. And everything that I did to the other kids, they started doing to me because now I'm the only one. And everything reversed. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? And it was a huge lesson. It changed my life. That was the change of my life. It right changed there. your life how? It changed my life, how I treated people, how I looked at people. Because, you know... It, it was then became a racial thing, you know, black and white. And really growing up, you know, in the neighborhood, it's like we all, we could only pick one or the other. There was no brown. There was not. It was either black or white. Right. I grew up in the time of Black Panther Party. Angela Davis was my friend, you know, so I saw all that go down. We played for their first event that they had in the parking lot. I played my dad and I for their event when they first opened up to feed you know, the people on the streets in the community. So I was around all that. And it just changed me like, I don't need to fight. I don't know why am I angry? Why I didn't find out why I was angry till later. But I just, everything changed. It's like, I don't want to be that person. And I need to change and, and be who I am, who I was. You said you found out later why you were angry. Why were you angry then? And how did you grow out of that? Yeah. So being angry, I was angry at people all the time because I was raped at five years old. Oh, wow. And I just didn't know how angry I held all of that inside. And so I was angry at people. I was angry at life. I was angry at whoever looked at me wrong. I was just angry. Even though I was happy as all get out, you would never know anything was wrong. But deep down inside, it's like I would just treat people wrong. You know, and later on did I realize it's like I was holding all this inside. And once I let all that go, my whole life changed. How did you... I mean, so many people hold on to that pain. Mm. How did you release it? Uh, I wrote it down. Um, 
we were in Japan and we were with this band and my friends were in the band and they said, okay, we're going to have Bible study. So we want you to teach Bible study. I'm like, I don't know how to teach Bible study. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do, you know? And they're like, no, 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 it's your turn. You, you'll be fine. Just think of something to talk about. And I'm like, so my friend told me, why don't you tell your testimony? And I'm like, I can't share that yet. I can't do it. She knew about it. I can't do it. So I ended up, she said, just write whatever you feel. So I got on the computer and I started writing and I didn't read anything back and I just kept writing, writing, writing. And then I stopped, you know, like 45 minutes, an hour later, and I started reading the first paragraph. And as I read like the first page, I just broke down like, I'm talking about me. Like, this is me, my life. And that was the beginning of the purge to let go of all that I had didn't even know that I had. And I just went into a fetal position and I cried for like, till I was throwing up for three days. Just, I couldn't even stop crying. And I just, I couldn't even read the rest of it. I was just done. And I was like, this is the beginning. I mean, I didn't know them, but my friend came over. She goes, I know what you just did. And, and um, that was the beginning of the healing process of changing, of letting go of the guilt, the shame, the dirty, I was like, God, just get me through this, you know. And I felt that God was talking to me by saying, I already made you whole, you're fine. You're okay, it's not your fault what happened to you. And then to realize when I started talking about it in churches and youth groups, did I find out that more than half of the people in a room had been abused, and I was not the only one. And as I talked about it, more so did you know, like peeling an onion, stuff just started coming off of me. And I was like, oh my God, I'm free. And realizing that I was also blessing other people by sharing my story. Yeah. I mean, that relates so much to things that I've been dealing with in the last several months of learning that, you know, because you're taught throughout your life, especially as a man, sure. don't talk about your pain, you know, just take care of it yourself, you know, sharing it burdens other people. And learning that talking about it and not even getting advice or direction, but just telling yeah. your testimony yeah. can be liberating for yourself. Absolutely. And this is this is new for me at yeah. 48 years old of yeah. like, don't hold it in, like let it out. Yeah. And um, it's quite powerful just it to is. see like other people have been through the same trauma. Right. Right. And like, I mean, and it's just an amazing example for you of like, when I told my story, I felt better mm -hmm. and liberative. I always felt like that would be wallowing in it, but no, it's like you gain distance from it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations to you. <laughs> just trying to learn. Yeah. You you had an album a couple of years ago, Message for America. Mm -hmm. What did you want America, what message did you want to send to America? Um, at that time, uh, the election has started and I was just devastated by the things that were being said for, this, for that election. And uh, to hear... I don't even say his name, that, that guy who's mm -hmm. now in office. Um, mm -hmm. I can't say his name. Anyway, he started talking about Hispanic people and the Mexicans are drug dealers and they're rapists and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I was so mad and angry. And I don't get that mad and angry like that. 
And I that was it felt personal to you. Oh, absolutely, it did. Yeah. yeah. And I posted a I tagged him as well, and I posted a picture of my grandfather, and I said my grandpa was a great man, and he came from Saltillo, Mexico, and he was a great man, and he worked hard in this country, and he raised his kids and blah. I I was just so offended. How dare you? And then I started feeling the division, the divide of what was happening in our country. And it just reminded me of growing up where I had to deal with the same thing of picking black or white. And it like, are we starting all over again? Like, this is crazy. So I went back and I started listening to songs that I grew up, uh, you know, that had uh, uh, that were relevant to what was happening. Not only that, uh, a few years before this election, I had put a folder together that I knew I was going to do a record called Politically Correct. I never did it, but I knew that once I did that, it would take me at least six months, and usually it doesn't take me that long to do a record. But it was things that I needed to talk about, like growing up in that era of black and white and just things that I went through. Um, because this election, I didn't have that much time to put something out, and I thought, how do I get to the people? The fastest way is to take some songs that uh, that are relevant. So I got, you know, um, Bootsy and George Clinton and Ringo, uh, Angela Davis, Dolores Huerta, um, so many people on the record, you know, Israel Houghton, to, to come and sing and play and sing songs that were relevant to get people to come together and and... Think about what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the way that Mexican people have been used as this political football by him um, to make white people excited about voting for him. Um, it, it, I mean, it must be incredibly painful. It, it's it's a disgrace. I'm embarrassed. Um, even recently, when we just played Canada, we went there three times in the last couple of months. And usually when I go to a place, uh, well, every place that we play, I always say, you know, um, we, my only job that I have is to plant the seed of love in someone's life every day and to bless just one person. That's the only job that I have. So if we can do that, we're doing our job. And every show I say that. And I ask everyone to stand up. And if you can just turn to someone next to you or in your surrounding area that's a stranger, look them in the eyes, hug them and say, I love you. And if we do that, we can change the atmosphere and what's happening in our country today because love and hate cannot exist in the same atmosphere. And if we choose love, hate goes away. It's that simple, but we don't choose that. We want to choose hate. We want to, we want to talk about the hate and we want to hate, hate, hate. Everything is just about hate. So if we do that, we can change the atmosphere and change what's happening in our country. When we went to Canada, um, I said to the Canadians, you know, we always say that we pray for people and, and people can go on my website and if you want prayer requests, we pray for people. We get prayers all the time and I look at them and we pray for people. I, but I told the Canadians, I said, can you guys pray for our country? Can you guys pray for us? And I got emotional because like, this is embarrassing. It's horrible. It's what's happening to us. And I was like, we need help. I've always been like looking at other countries like, how do they have some banana republic with a crazy dictator? Who's like, how do you do that? And then like, this is how it happens. And you thought it was insane until it happened to your country. Sure, Absolutely. Yeah. How do we get out of this? We have to go register and vote and get the right people in office who we really believe can help us. You know, if there's someone, you know, 
Um, and that's the power of music as well. It's we bring all ethnicities to our 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 shows, and it doesn't matter what your financial status doesn't matter. You know, uh, if you're Democrat, Republican, Tea Party doesn't matter. Independent music brings people together, and so if we can bring people together, and for that one moment, just say, "We got to make a change. We have to do this together." That, that's it's not a political statement. It's life. We need to change what's happening. So we need to go out and vote. We need to make a change. What attitude in you has propelled you the most to have the success and longevity that you've had? Attitude? Yeah. Gratitude. Love. Yeah. Purpose. I mean, those are the top three. Love, gratitude, purpose. Yeah. And then the rest is a piece of cake. Thanks so much to Sheila for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and talk about the show on social. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garfano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Chanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing people because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.